We talk basketball, football, coaching situations and extensions, and why the Pac-12 presidents went public. All that on an all-new episode of Gonzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Gonzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. for listening to this episode of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. I'm John Kanzano. You can read me at johnkanzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. I always say what works for you works for me. I'm here with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar. Uh, he is uh, easily accessible at pac12hotline.com and on Twitter at Wilner. Uh, hotline. Uh, Wilner, let me, we're recording this a day late. We're out of rhythm. Like, this thing has become a habit, and and now we're out of rhythm a little bit, and and uh, it got me thinking. Like, do you have a do you have a ritual? Do you have a habit that you do every day? You know, I I guess at the start of every day, I gotta have a cup of coffee, no matter what uh, what time I'm getting up, how well I slept, and I I have to have it the same way, right? A little bit of sugar, a little bit of uh, cream, and I'm such a junkie that if Somehow we don't have the coffee. I will go to the store and buy it that mm. morning before yes. I do anything else. Like I'll get in the car at five thirty or six in the morning, <laughs> either to go get the coffee or to even to go get the half and half. Right? Uh-huh. My, you know, like my okay, wife so, drinks soy milk. Well, I will not put soy milk in my coffee. Okay. I gotta have half and half. I will go to the Safeway at five thirty in the morning to buy half and half if we don't have it. There must I, be like I a just, there must be a, like a line of people who do that. Like the I'm the, I'm sure the checker sees that same scene over and over at six o'clock in the morning with somebody buying yeah. a bag of coffee. Well and there's a little yeah. Starbucks. There's a Starbucks in the Safeway that's down the street, but I despise Starbucks. Like I will only drink Starbucks if you know if I got the yeah, a, a caffeine headache, and there's no other option because it just it tastes terrible. We have what all about those, you. We have all those Dutch Bros kiosks up here in Oregon. I mean that that Dutch Bros got its start in Klamath Falls, and so you have a connection to the state. And um, uh, the the coffee isn't all that right. Like it's a lot of sugar in the Dutch Bros kiosk. But I find that I always feel good when I leave those transactions because the the employees who are working in there, nobody's happier than them. They're listening to music. They're dancing. They're asking you how your day is. They're going, what are you doing? And I want to, like, I've got to work today. Like, what are you doing? Like, But you leave those experiences feeling good. Um, I found during the pandemic that I didn't used to like to make my own coffee. I actually liked going to Starbucks or liked going to Dutch to, to get coffee. But I feel like it was more about just me getting out and getting a change of scenery because I do a lot of the work that I do from home and you know, home studio and uh, writing from home. And so there is a little bit of, uh, you know, hey, get get yourself dressed and go outside to that for me. But uh, that wouldn't be my ritual. My, my morning ritual is uh, we've got three daughters and the younger two daughters, six years old and eight years old. Anybody listening who's got kids, you, you'll relate to this. They are dramatically different people. Same DNA, dramatically different people. One of them is an early riser, the eight-year-old. She's up at five o'clock in the morning. Uh, if I told her oh, to make coffee, God. If, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and on weekend too. If I told her to make coffee, she would make it. Like if, you know, she's that responsible kid. She lets the dog out. You know, she uh, disarms the house, turns off the alarm. She's she just makes herself at home, right? Um, and then the uh, the six-year-old though, 
is that kid who lays there and you turn on the light and you say, hey, it's time to get up and she doesn't move. And then you check if she's alive and you're going, okay, she's breathing. And then you say, hey, it's time to get dressed and go go to school. And she barely stirs. And, and, and so my morning ritual before I sit down to write and do anything is getting that six-year-old dressed. And if any of you out there have tips for a parent who's got a six-year-old who uh, loves to uh, sleep in in the morning, uh, I would love to hear from you and love to get your advice because that's how my morning starts. I, I am I am MacGyvering and problem-solving and trying to get that kid motivated. And yeah, it'll serve her well in life. You know, she sleeps deep and uh, she plays hard. But, man, sometimes in the mornings... Uh, as she's skipping off to school, because once you get her out of bed and get dressed and breakfast, and she's fine, but as she's skipping off to school, I just go, whew, I'm ready for my coffee now. Yeah, I bet. Well, you need to send your uh, ship your eight-year-old down here. I'll take her. Yeah. she's. Uh, I would love yeah. love, uh, love somebody to handle all those responsibilities. She might be the most responsible person that, uh, that I know. And so I, uh, I – but, yeah, it's a little early. We had to have a talk with her if, if the uh, – if the clock uh, doesn't say start with a five, we do not want you to get out of bed because she'll go to bed real early and she'll wake early. And uh, I almost want to keep her out, uh, keep her late uh, yeah. to make her sleep in. We are recording late in part because um, Dana Altman, the University of Oregon basketball coach, on Tuesday night, Oregon hosted an NIT game against Wisconsin. First Big Ten opponent to come to Oregon to play a game in some time. And only 3,358 people showed up. The Ducks didn't play well. They lost. And Dana Altman, after the game, was very frustrated and let it rip. He said, you know, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm not marketing. I'm not on Twitter. I'm just coaching. And he said, if I'm the problem, get rid of me. I'll go coach junior college. And uh, I ended up on the phone with Dana Altman uh, the morning after that rant and having a really candid conversation that I wrote about and uh, had about a 30-minute talk with him. He called me and just uh, continued to vent about why he was venting. And I thought it was just a fascinating glimpse into the mind of a frustrated coach who's frustrated with his team, frustrated with fans not showing up for a midweek NIT game. Like, who's going to go to that? And, oh, by the way, what is he, 64? He's going to be 65 this summer? I mean, when I saw his comments after the game, I'm like, man, this is a guy who – is he going to quit? Because you combine that specific instance with, you know, the fact he's been frustrated all season with his team and last year wasn't great. And my first thought was, boy, is is he done in Eugene? Yeah, I don't – he told me he's not leaving unless they want him gone. He said he was mad at the world. It was the end of the season. We all know how that is. If you like, if you're a if you're a beat reporter who's covering that team at the end of the season, you don't feel like seeing, you know, one more day of basketball. If you're a coach at the end of that kind of season, I can't imagine that he's happy with getting to the NIT and, you know, flaming out in the NIT. But um, you know, if you're Dana Altman, uh, I don't think he walks away. They owe him like eighteen or nineteen million dollars, so there's too much money there. And he loves to coach. He told me, he says, I love my grandkids, but, you know, they'll get sick of me. I, I don't really know what else I would do outside of coaching. So I do expect that he's going to push towards 70. He's 64. He'll push towards 70. But he also kind of vented that he needs players that are ready to compete. And here's the theory I have, Wilner, and I want, want your brain on this. After he made the Final Four uh, in Peyton Pritchard's freshman year, he had access to higher caliber recruits. He started getting 
access to the one-and-done crew. Now, he didn't get to the Final Four with one-and-done players. He got to the Final Four with Dylan Brooks and Tyler Dorsey and Jordan Bell, guys who had been in the program multiple, multiple years. They, they were experienced players. But he hasn't had as much success in the NCAA tournament with the higher uh, higher caliber recruit. It, you know. But he told me that it's tricky. He says you have to get the best player who will work his butt off for you. And I think he's ready to kind of course correct a little bit and get back to recruiting maybe maybe some four-star guys that'll stay in the program. Jackson Shellstad being one of them, an in-state recruit that he that he's landed. I thought I, I saw that comment from him, and to me there is almost an exact parallel. Ben Howland at UCLA, right? When Howland got there, I don't remember what his first year was, like 2002, 2003, right? He was signing good players that were not, you know, of the one and done caliber. And in his third year, they get to the final four and they made three straight appearances in the final four. You know, he's got like Luke Richard and Bob Mute and Lorenzo Mata, Aaron Aflalo, Jordan Farmar. Those guys were very good players. Uh, some of them were kind of diamonds in the rough, but they weren't one and dones. And then. UCLA evolved and became, you know, the UCLA of its of its legacy. And he started getting access to, you know, the one and done type talents. Uh, And after that third final four, you know, it was a whole different type of recruiting and a whole different type of roster. And they never got back there. And he he did not have the kind of players that that Altman's talking about that he related to. It's a very. You know, it's it is like a, almost a deal with the devil in some ways for these coaches, right? Because you you want the ta- every every fiber of your body says go get the one and done talent, but it's not that doesn't necessarily work. And I think part of what we're seeing in the NCAA tournament too is teams that have continuity, teams you know the veterans that aren't relying completely on the transfer portal, aren't relying completely on one and dones. A lot of those schools are are winning, especially the opening weekend. It's it's a really fascinating question that Altman's dealing with. Yeah, Altman pointed out, because I asked him about the portal. I said, you know, how hard can you get into the portal? And he said you have to because the player you're getting in the portal is 23, 24 years old, and the player you're getting out of high school is 17, 18. He said there's no comparison. And he pointed to the Sweet 16. He said look at the teams, look at the rosters. He said outside of Arkansas, he said you have 25-year-old players competing against 18 and 19 year olds he said it's a mismatch and yeah and he believes that's why we saw some of the upsets that we saw in the first and second round of the of the tournament that it it's older players competing against younger players because part because of the covid year in part because of the portal yeah and, and you know another this kind of segues a little bit to another topic i thought we should hit which was asu bobby hurley got an extension yeah and they have also relied a ton on transfers right desmond cambridge uh who's basically their best player the kid that hit the the 60 foot shot against arizona you know he's a sixth year player but you gotta so it is interesting uh, you know the the experience the age maturity all that physically developed men versus 18 year old you know, teenagers, but you got to do it right. Because if you miscalculate with the type of kid you're getting in the portal, it can affect the chemistry of your team. hundred percent. And, you know, I went to ASU in the middle of the season to kind of spend a week uh, watching Hurley and watching Arizona state. Cause I just thought it was such a pivotal season for their program. And, 
you know, there was some question, you know, while I was there, there were some murmurs from people about whether or not Bobby Hurley wanted to be at Arizona State. Did, you know, were they ungrateful for the success he had brought them in the NCAA tournament? Did, you know, was it, uh, you know, there's a season for all things, had it run its course. There was a lot of that talk going on in the backdrop. But, you know, he has six players that he got in the transfer portal. He the best player on his roster off the team in the second week of the season. And he still got that team together and got it to move in the same direction. And I think it was remarkable what he did. I think he does extension. And I think he's good for the conference. I think, you know, he's a good coach. And I think there's a place in the Pac-12 conference for Bobby Hurley. Uh, so I'm glad he's in the conference. But I just think the remarkable thing that he did was we've seen a coaches take players in the transfer portal. But you have players who are coming in with their own agenda. They, you know, it's one year in some cases. It's a one-year wonder. And they're all trying to get what they need out of the experience. And he got those six transfers and the rest of his roster moving in the same direction. And the thing that's remarkable about his roster is, you know, I had a scout look at all the Pac-12 teams. The The scouts comment about Arizona State's is they don't have a guy on that roster. Now, Cambridge is a really good player, but is he a guy who can take over a game? Not really. He didn't have a guy. And but. And he still got himself 20-plus wins and got himself into the tournament. I thought it was pretty remarkable. Yeah, and every year it seems like, you know, it's is this year they're going to fire Hurley? Is he going to leave? You know, is he going to get an extension? ASU fans, it seems like, are perpetually, at least some of them, perpetually unhappy. Uh, even though he has got – if you look at the historical standard for the program in the last 30, 40 years, he's he's trending above, clearly. Uh, you know, if they hadn't – without COVID, they would probably be working on, you know, six or seven consecutive NCAA bids. Uh, I, I think he's done a really good job there, and he's doing it with a uh, an arena that certainly is not good for recruiting, right? The thing is old, and I, I have to think – Everybody who is part of ASU basketball uh, had to be pretty disappointed with the comments Michael Crow, the school president, made to the student paper. Was that last week, two weeks ago? You know, that he didn't think the arena was an important piece of success. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that is just completely out of touch with what's going on with recruiting. And I do wonder if, you know, if the fact that Hurley got ASU uh, to a pretty high level early in his his tenure, you know, has made it seem to to the to Michael Crow that the arena isn't important because we want you know we won early without the, redoing the arena. Why do we re- need to redo it now? It's it's de- you know detached from any kind of uh, success on the court. And I just have to think Hurley and the people there were pretty disappointed to hear Crow dismiss the need to upgrade. Uh, upgrade their facility yeah and i don't think you need to knock that thing down it's got good bones i mean i walked all around it when i was there and that you know it's interesting that you say that about crow because he was at the ucla arizona state game that was the thursday game that i saw that that week in tempe and the building was rocking the student section was rocking they had their largest turnout ever by students at arizona state they broke the school record that night and it was a real atmosphere and so i wonder if from his standpoint he's seeing that kind of atmosphere He's seeing NCAA tournament uh, appearances and, you know, Arizona State, you're, you know, when I look at the uh, spending in men's basketball in the conference, Arizona State spent $8.9 million in expenses. That is relatively modest by by standards in the conference. 
So dollar for dollar, they got really good value at $8.9 million. By comparison, Oregon spends $10.9 million. UCLA spent $11.9. Arizona spent $12.2. So you can get an idea that, you know, ASU got to the tournament, Oregon didn't, and they spent less money. So if I'm Michael Crow, I'm going, hey, we spent a couple million less than Oregon, and uh, our arena, yeah, it's not Matthew Knight Arena, but we had fans show up, and Dana Altman's complaining about the 3,358 that showed up at his place. But you're speaking to the larger point that we've both talked about and written about. There needs to be a bigger buy-in with basketball investment. There does, and it, now it seems like, uh, you know, Hurley's not not going anywhere. I thought for a little while that maybe he would take one of the jobs back east. Uh, there's going to be one coaching change, right? Cal is the only school that has changed coaches. Washington didn't change. Stanford didn't change. Hurley's coming back. Uh, Wayne Tinkle's coming back, you know, and so this yet another season where Pac-12 basketball, you know, as a collective – did not perform very well, and yet the schools most you know the schools that have coaches that are underperforming are not making changes. You know, uh, Washington, uh, Stanford in particular, in terms of right right now in Oregon State, uh, it's interesting. I just think you know they're, they're, we're going to have maybe it's going to be next next spring. I don't know, but there's going to there needs to be. Uh, an overhaul of of coaching, I think, in the in the conference. Yeah, I think we saw it in football, and we saw you know schools like UCLA went out and got Chip Kelly. Um, obviously, uh, USC, Lincoln Riley, Colorado gets Deion Sanders. There's an investment that is happening in football that, it, in some ways, started two and three years ago and is and is paying off now. Um, uh, let's pivot a little bit to but, uh, yeah. Let's yeah. get. Can we get back to Michael Crow? Real yeah, quick? yeah. Go ahead. Because since we mentioned him with the Hur- with Hurley, he was in the news. He was one. He's been one of three presidents that has been in the news uh, in the last two weeks. Public comments about the state of the media rights, right? And you know, in the same interview he gave with the student paper about the arena, he talked about Pac-12 media rights and the fact that ASU is you know, fully committed and hasn't had discussions with the Big 12 and he expects a good deal. What did you think about the sudden public barrage? What did you think about the sudden public barrage of presidents, go, you know, talking about the media rights after many months of basically radio silence? Yeah, what struck me was that the to- there were talking points. They were They were saying the same things. We're committed. We're galvanized. You know, we're, you know, they were, so to speak, moving in the same direction. They wanted that out there. And I think they, this had to be orchestrated. There had to be some discussion behind the scenes, whether it was with the commissioner, George Klyovkov, or the presidents and the CEO group themselves. I, I believe that they probably sat down and said, hey, we need some, we need to be able to talk. We're getting a bunch of media requests. We're, we're taking some heat publicly. We're letting too many other people tell our story. Uh, it's time for us to to tell our own story. And for me, this is way too late. They should have been doing this months ago. But I like that they came out. I like that, in particular, we saw uh, the Four Corners schools get involved with uh, Utah and, and Arizona State uh, and Arizona. And I think it was interesting to see that orchestration play out and to hear the talking points. We all feel like we're going to get a good deal. The deal's coming down the pipeline. It's uh, We feel like we're close. And we're all committed. We're not leaving for a few million dollars more. And, you know, there was a lot of logic in what they were saying. But to me, it felt totally orchestrated. 
Yeah, and that tells you uh, – see, I don't think the, the conference office would be doing that if they weren't confident, right? So that tells me that there is a certain level of understanding of what the bids are going to be, right? I don't know whether Commissioner George Klyakov and his, st- his team, negotiating team, have seen the final bids, but certainly – the fact that they sent these presidents out there with a positive message it seems to indicate that they feel good. They have seen enough. They've heard enough to feel pretty confident. So either they're right uh, and they're going to get competitive bids and everybody's going to sign up for another contract cycle or this far along in the process, they have somehow misread the room and the the final bids are not going to be what they want. And that would, you know, that would be obviously a gigantic whiff, but uh, it just seems to me like they must know enough because they're, if things are going bad behind the scenes, there's no way they're sending those presidents out there with those talking points. Yeah. And there's no way that uh, some others are staying quiet if things are going bad. And, you know, you know look, I, I'm not saying this is what's happening. But I wonder if the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors, you know, they're academics. They're they're not on Twitter all day long. They're not hosting a radio show. They're not John Wilner, you know, calling around and talking to coaches and, and hearing from fans who are impatient and frustrated. They're focused largely on their own campuses and their own budgets and filling the holes in their budgets and, and tenure and uh, staffing for classrooms and, you know, how are, are hybrid classes going to be a thing this term? And so they're focused on all that stuff. And I just wonder if they were a little slow to react to public sentiment because they're a little bit out of touch. And I mean, that is an insult. I just mean, like, I think they're immersed in what they're doing in their world. And it's a very different world than the world the rest of us live in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, too, they are not... University presidents, I've learned this over the years, they don't know how, for the most part, not every one of them, there's some exceptions, but many of them don't know how to talk to the media about athletics. And so when you interview one of them or you hear them on the radio or or see see comments, you kind of have to run everything through the presidential media filter in your head and try to figure out what are they trying to say? Because sometimes they're a little clunky with their phrasing. They're not specific enough. You know, they're trying to be collegial. And and in that that attempt, you know, their their point is is missed. So you have to be real careful with how you read their comments when it comes to athletics. And I think that that has been the case, you know, uh, last last two weeks and, and just generally so uh, they don't what they are trying to say doesn't always come across clearly in what they do say. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And look, I've interviewed uh, a number of the presidents on radio, and sometimes those conversations are awkward. Uh, and sometimes I, I kind of furrow my brow and I, I go, OK, wait. And I have to remind myself that they, they live in a very different world and athletics Look, if we go back 10 or 15 years, when a lot of these presidents were getting their start, some of them were even already presidents of other universities, athletics wasn't the thing that it is today. It wasn't printing money at uh, at the university level. In a lot of places, the university was subsidizing athletics. And so it's only been 
in the last 15 years that the athletic departments of a lot of the schools that weren't like powerhouse schools back in the day have received these media rights windfalls and are starting to be more self-sufficient. And in some cases, they're steering the university in a way that the academics on the campus are not comfortable. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. What do you what has you been your takeaway in terms of the the process? Like baseball analogy, do you think the Pac-12 is in the bottom of the ninth at this point? It, I think it has to be. I was told like a couple of months ago that it was the seventh inning, and I was like, "Well, wait, seventh inning stretch, start of the seventh, end of the seventh. Where are we? Like, are we making a pitching change? What's happening here?" So, uh, yeah, is, I, is I, there I, a pitch? Is there a clock? Yeah, like <laughs> we get a pitch, pitch clock, clock on this thing. Um, uh, but I also think, look, uh, you know, if you're a negotiator, you know, the Pac-12, it needs leverage, right? And I think part of the message that it has to send as it's negotiating these deals is that they're not in a hurry, right? Because, you know, the parties you're doing business with, they want the best possible deal. You want the most money that you can get. So I understand why some of this is dragging out and people keep asking me what's taking so long. Part of it is you're dealing with Apple and you're dealing with Amazon. And, you know, I think these entities, I've been told that, you know, what should be a one hour discussion with Apple and Amazon turns into a week because they don't have a grasp of how do you, uh, how are we drafting games every week? How, you know, what happens in this scenario? What happens in that? And they're going back to their attorneys and they're, and so what would be a one hour discussion with ESPN and Fox ends up being like, you know, back and forth, back and forth, and it just drags the process out. But I have to think, Wilner, that this is in the bottom of the ninth. You know, is there one out? Is there two outs? I don't know. But I just feel like they are very close, especially based on the comments that we heard from those presidents. Yeah, it was interesting, too. At least I know Taylor Randall at Utah, and I believe Robin said the same thing. You know, Robin's is like, I'm I'm in favor of waiting a while, right? Because you know we'll see if that helps us get a better deal. We should wait. And and Randall mentioned the fact that if if USC and UCLA hadn't left last summer, the Pac-12 would just now basically be starting the negotiations, right? Typically, your your exclusive window with your existing partners begins, you know, say 18 months before the contract ends. So for the Pac-12 contract ends June 30th, 2024. So sometime maybe December, January, after the holidays, they would have entered an exclusive negotiating window with ESPN Fox. I think that window was 90 days based on the, the terms of the current contract. So they would kind of be exiting the exclusive window with ESPN and Fox right about now, and then taking their rights to the open market on April 1st of 2023 for a contract that expires in on June 30th of 2024. But everything got moved up because of USC and UCLA. I think that they, some of the presidents feel like, you know what, with the old, you know, the, the old timeline is, is just fine. It's not a big deal that we're, we've been doing this for eight or nine months because we're on what would be the traditional time frame. Let me ask you this. NCAA tournament is on. Uh, I was asked uh, by a, a reader today, uh, possible that the presidents and chancellors don't want to make a, an announcement during the NCAA tournament. Is it possible they're waiting until after the final four to come forth with the de deal because they don't want it lost in the basketball? Is that even a consideration at this point? 
I think no chance. I think that then once they've got a deal and they've approved, you know, they've agreed to sign the grant of rights, they're going to announce it. I don't think the NCAA has anything to do with it. Do you think we get especially given yeah. the fact that there's now no teams? Well, they got three teams left on the women's side, one left on the men's side, and and that's a team that's leaving. Yeah, and I, I think outside of the opening first and second round, um, there's a lull that happens in the tournament. We're in the middle of a lull before the Sweet 16 games, and there'll be another lull before the Final Four that, where there's a couple of few days where, you know, it, it, things won't get lost. But let me ask you this, too. Like, you know, as you, as you look at expansion versus media rights, you know, we've been told that, that, you know, San Diego State and SMU, let's use them as the example, that, you know, there's going to be an academic thing. Do they fit? Uh, is it a culture? Do they fit? Geography? Do they fit? The, they answer those questions first. Then I was told that the Pac-12 is going to pivot to the media partners and say, do they bring value? Does the Dallas-Fort Worth media market bring value? Does Southern California, San Diego kind of value? What value do they add to what we're negotiating? And then if they add value, they would be added. Do you think we get a leak on the expansion front before we get a media rights announcement? Or do we get a media rights announcement, then expansion? What's your hunch on the chicken and the egg? Well, the fact that SMU leaked the the visit by the conference uh, executives uh, to their campus, was that in February? Uh, indicates to me that SMU is not great at keeping its mouth shut. And uh, so I don't know. I think maybe maybe there'll be a leak out of SMU. I don't know about San Diego State. They've been pretty tight-lipped. Uh, but just the fact that you're bringing in other entities naturally would, uh, I think, indicate you know there's a better chance of some kind of leak. Uh, but I, yeah, I would probably vote that the expansion leak – could happen before a media rights leak. That. What about you? Yeah, I agree because I think that those decisions are going to kind of be made in lockstep. Even though we've been told it's it's media rights then expansion, I think you know they've obviously already done their diligence on the expansion front. San Diego State's president came out and talked uh, about joining a Power Five conference like it was a foregone conclusion. Uh, I think they're feeling pretty good about where they are. But I also think, and their basketball team's been, you know, the, yeah. what do you think? You think that the basketball team making the Sweet Sixteen is impactful at all on this decision? It doesn't hurt, right? It's it's optics. It's uh, it's free marketing. It's hey, we belong in major college basketball, and the Pac-12 wants to belong in major college basketball. So I think a lot of people like. Ultimately, I think the media market and the TV households are more important. But um, I think it, it certainly doesn't hurt that conversation right now to be to be out front. Uh, to your point, I think. As quiet and as locked down as the presidents and chancellors have been, I'm I'm going to expect that we're going to get San Diego State or SMU, if they're invited to join, that the news will break there, and then it'll be a matter of hours or a half a day, and they'll say, hey, we got a media rights deal, San Diego State, SMU are in or out or whatever it is, and, and that's the news. Yeah, and the thing is, if that's the case— then you know the other pieces are falling in line because I think you know if they agree to expand, that means they're agreed to stick together to sign the grant of rights. There's a media deal that's acceptable to everybody. I think if there's no news on expansion, then that indicates you know that they're having trouble landing those other two airplanes, so to speak, because they're trying to get three things done basically at once, and and they're all obviously interconnected. Yeah, and uh, look, I think it's going to be. Really interesting to see where this lands. And then, of course, then uh, the question will be, did the Pac-12 beat the Big 12's number of $31.6 million in annual media rights distribution? 
sounded like the presidents were confident or at least feeling encouraged about where the numbers were going to land. But let's see the numbers. Show me the baby. Yeah. Show me the baby, And also, man. does it matter? I, I just keep thinking, it, as long as you're close, it doesn't matter. The Big 12 already gets more money uh, per school than the Pac-12 does, both in terms of the broadcast uh, TV deal for the regular season and also in terms of total revenue for, you know, playoff and NCAA tournament, right? Uh, there people, it's important to remember, may, conference revenue is basically three buckets. It's your broadcast television deal for a regular season and conference championship. It's college football playoff, bowl games, and it's NCAA tournament units. And the Big 12 is generating more uh, both in terms of the broadcast and total revenue than the Pac-12 is now. Uh, I just don't think a couple million bucks here or there makes any difference. You can, there's tons of examples of schools, uh, you know, excelling in football uh, relative to, to uh, programs that are making a lot more money, right? I mean, just Clemson's the best example, right? Clemson obviously not bringing in as much money as anybody in the Big Ten or the SEC. And look at what they've been able to do in football. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I think you know look I I do think dollars matter when you're spending, it, right? I mean dollars matter when you're in football or men's basketball. You have to be within range of those that are spend out spending everybody. But uh, I I think a, you can make up ground, and we've seen programs make up ground uh, with great coaching and culture and you know other other things. But NIL is certainly uh, changing the equation as well. Um, hey, I got a question for you as uh, the NCAA tournament unfolds. And, you know, do you think Pac-12 fans from the beginning of the NCAA tournament should be should have been rooting for UCLA, rooting against UCLA? I've, I, I feel like there's there, that's a little bit of a polarizing discussion, but uh, there's more money for the Pac-12. Those are $2 million games for the conference. The, every game UCLA played in the tournament was worth $2 million. But should Pac-12 fans have been rooting against the Bruins from the beginning or for them? I think it's the same discussion, basically, as we had in football. Should people have been rooting for USC to make the college football playoff? And I thought yes, because USC is a member of the Pac-12. What's happening in 18 months, uh, 15 months, doesn't matter. You want to get in the playoff any way you can. And, uh, you know, certainly it would have been better for – uh, Utah or Washington or Oregon to make the playoff than USC, just like it'd be better for Oregon or Arizona to make the the Final Four rather than UCLA. But I, th I think the Pac-12 needs to take any kind of Final Four team it can get. It doesn't matter if it's a defector or not, just like it didn't matter whether it was USC or not, and, and be happy with that. And take the money. Take the money. Everybody's going to be in the hole about $4 million bucks because that Comcast fiasco. Take the money. Yeah, and I think uh, it, the more UCLA wins, the more uh, Washington State, Oregon State, Arizona, you know, everybody in the conference, uh, they like money. And and I think over time, too, the, the bad feelings about USC and UCLA, look, um, I've already felt like some of that has dissipated a little bit. I don't think Pac-12 fans are ever going to like where UCLA and USC, what they did. But I think we can all kind of understand what they were thinking, at least, and that, you know, they were uh, they were looking at the finances of this and probably being sold on the idea that college athletics was heading to a semi-professional model. And so, you know, I get it. It's not what I would have done. It's not, you know, I wouldn't have blown up the tradition, the history, the conference. And, and so, you know, there's part of me that's disappointed, really disappointed in those schools. But 
um, you know, it's not personal with the people involved. It's not personal with the the kids who are playing on the teams who were competing as Pac-12 athletes a year ago. And I and I think uh, in that sense, I think it'd be good for the Pac-12 to have a team play as deep as possible and make as much money as possible. And, and the shame is that there aren't more teams playing. And yeah, the investment yeah. needs to happen in in basketball. The teams that are spending by and large are winning. I mean, there's some outliers. Oregon is you know like number four in spending in the conference and or didn't make the postseason in the NCAA tournament. Uh, but there's a school like Washington State. They're, they're not spending as much as anybody. They're spending $5.8 million. That's the lowest in men's basketball. And they, dollar for dollar, win for win, you know, did okay. Yeah, and the other thing is USC and UCLA aren't taking their money with them, right? The the money that they earn on the via NCAA tournament units, so each game is worth a certain amount, and that amount it increases every year. And you keep that money for six years. So US any money UCLA's winning now, the Bruins get one twelfth, you know, uh next year. But then beyond that, that money goes is only split ten ways instead of twelve. So the continue, the remaining schools are gonna actually get a bump uh from UCLA's winnings and the Bruins can't can't take what they reap. So that's a, a, an important point to the whole financial calculation as well. All right, we will continue to monitor what is happening in this conference. I appreciate the people listen to this podcast and make it part of their day. Make sure you subscribe if you're not already subscribed. Make a commitment. It's free. Why wouldn't you do that? Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. You can find John Wilner, act12hotline.com. Wilner, uh, start a new habit, man. Get your get your coffee and, uh, you know, one other thing. You're a runner, too, so, you know, you must running's a habit, isn't it? I, I'm a jogger. I, I'm a slow jogger, but it does it does help clear the head. There's no doubt about that. We we all need a little bit of that uh, these days. All right. I appreciate everybody who listens to the podcast. And heaven knows we all need a little bit of that these days. Catch you next week, everybody. Thanks, everybody.